All right, I want to welcome everyone to our continuing study of the book of Acts. If you'll do me a favor in the back of the room, if you can hear me, can you give me a thumbs up? Thumbs up in the back of the room. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 21. We have worked our way passage by passage through this book, and we've landed in the middle of Acts chapter 21 today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And I want to invite you to pray with, me. pray with me. We're going to ask God to bless the teaching of his word today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we want to, we want to voice to you in prayer what we just sung to you, Lord. Our desire as we gather this morning around your word is that you would speak to us, O oh Lord. That you would speak to us, Lord, as our Father in heaven, that you would be pleased to feed us with bread from your word today, Lord. And we remind ourselves in your presence today, God, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart today. And we ask for that gift, Lord, that you would remind us today that your word is powerful, that it's from your mouth and that it reveals to us, Lord, the deep things that even we ourselves cannot see, Lord. And so we ask, God, that you would bless the teaching of your word today, God, that you wouldn't allow this time to fall to the ground in vain, Lord, but that your church would be built up today, Lord, that your children would be fed today from your word. God, I pray for this church, Lord, we pray that you would shape our minds by Holy Scripture. Lord, you tell us in your word that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And God, I pray for this church, Lord, that you would own our minds, God, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst to know your word, to know your truth, God. Help us to never get to a place of contentment. To where we're content not to go further into what you've revealed to us. God, we pray that you'd make us like those Bereans that earnestly heard your word. That heard it with thirst, Lord, and with hunger and with earnestness, God. God, fill us with that heart and that desire to know you through your word. God, we pray for our hearts as we study your word, Lord, that you would shape our minds, God. And you would also shape our affections and our character, Lord. And we ask that you would be pleased to do that even today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> if you have your Bibles, we're going to start this morning. We're going to read our passage together in Acts 21. And this is a longer passage of Scripture. And so I want to ask everybody to stand. And we're going to read God's Word together today, beginning in Acts chapter 21. Verse 17. This is God's word to Grace Community Church today. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. So that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know. That there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood 
and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins? Out into the wilderness, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. <coughs> Sorry. Tried to stop that, it didn't work. I want to start out this morning and I want to lay a foundation uh, for us as we dig into this passage that I believe is going to help us to better understand what's happening as we head towards the end of the book of Acts. And, and that might have been something that you bumped across in your own reading of this book, that you're reading through Acts. And, and, and maybe this has hit you. It certainly hit me and other brothers that I've talked to that the ending of this book is somewhat strange. You're reading through the book of Acts and you're hearing about the expansion of the gospel. The gospel has gone from Judea, Jerusalem to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And it's expanding into the uh, Gentile world. You have these three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, the gospel going here and there. And expanding everywhere in, in, in the known world, in the Roman Empire. And then we, as we come to the end of this book, things take a drastic change. And, and for the last several, several chapters, we don't read any longer about the expansion of the gospel. We read about Paul uh, being in jail and a series of trials and speeches that the Apostle Paul gives. And probably even the most interesting detail is that the book ends with Paul in jail and Roman. We don't even know what happens to him. And so there's some curiosity about the way that this book ends. And I want us to dig into that um, this morning. Uh, I want to remind us um, that, that the author of the book of Acts is Luke. And he actually wrote another book in the New Testament. We know it as the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that's going to help us is to observe some parallels that happen in the book of Acts and in the gospel of Luke. There's some intentional things that Luke parallels for us that are actually quite important of what, what Luke is setting out to do, especially as he closes the book of Acts. And so I want us to remember that, that the same author wrote Luke 
and Acts. And not only the same author, they were written to the same person. If you remember at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he addresses his gospel to a man named Theophilus. Okay? And then we get to the book of Acts and we see that that, that same man is addressed, Theophilus, again. And so we need to think about Luke-Acts being a two-part volume. Okay? The book of Acts is a continuation of part one, and part one is the, is the book of Luke. And so let's talk just, just for a moment about some parallels, some intentional parallels that Luke draws in the book of Acts between the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself. And Ron had mentioned this two weeks ago. Um, something interesting happens in, in Acts 20. Okay? The gospel is exploding in the Gentile world and it climaxes in, in the city of Ephesus. This wide and effective door opens up in the city of Ephesus and Paul is there for three years. And we're told in that chapter that all who are in Asia hear the word of the Lord, the explosive expansion of the gospel. And then beginning in verse in chapter 20, Paul begins to set his face to Jerusalem. And Ryan observed, just like Jesus before him, fully aware that Paul is going to suffer when he gets there. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, fully aware that he also will suffer in Jerusalem. But these parallels between Paul and Jesus, they go deeper, deeper than even that. And I want to mention a few of them. The most notable is this, that both Paul and Jesus, uh, they are subjected to a series of four trials. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is subjected to four trials. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is subjected to four trials. Let me, uh, let me get these out really quick. In volume one of Luke's work, Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin. Then he's tried by Pilate. Then he's tried by Herod, and then he's tried by Pilate again. Jump into volume two of Luke's work, and we have Paul. And in the book of Acts, Paul is tried by the Sanhedrin. He's tried by Felix. He's tried by Herod. And then he's tried by Festus. So we have these parallels that these trials that the apostle Paul is facing, they're lining up exactly parallel with the trials of Jesus himself. And Luke's gospel. And it goes even further than this. The Jews at both trials, they respond with the exact same phrase. At Jesus' trial at Luke 23, this is verse 18. They said about Jesus, they said, away with this man. Away with this man. And if you were paying attention when we read that passage today in Acts 21 verse 36. The Jews respond the exact same way. When the Apostle Paul is, is, is on trial and they say away with him. This is a shorthand expression of they're, they're screaming out, kill him, kill him, away with him. And something even more interesting than that is the Roman response to both the trials of Jesus and the, the trials of um, the Apostle Paul himself. So the Jewish response is the same and so is the Roman response. That there are three separate declarations, both of Jesus and of Paul, of, of, of Roman declarations that they are innocent of the charges that have, that have been brought against them. So if you have, uh, just put your hand in Acts 21 and turn with me really quickly to Luke 23. To Luke 23. And I want to draw our attention to, to the trials of Jesus. And the way the Romans responded at the trial of Jesus, we're told three times in Luke's gospel, the same thing. Luke chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate, the Roman governor, here's what he says um, as Jesus is being accused. He says, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. This is the arm of Caesar in the city of Jerusalem. And he declares that Jesus is guiltless. And he doesn't stop there. Jump to verse 14. Pilate says again. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. That's times two. And then jump down to verse 23. This is the Roman verdict. Pilate says again. I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Jesus is innocent three times over from the mouth of the Roman government. And then jump back into the book of Acts. 
And as these trials play out towards the end of the book of Acts, as Paul is facing these four different trials three different times, there's a Roman verdict rendered about the Apostle Paul. And it's almost word for word the same thing that was said about Jesus. Let me read these really quickly. Acts chapter 23, verse 39. There's a Roman tribune. He's a military leader named Claudius. And he says this about Paul. He says, I have found that he was being charged with nothing deserving of death. There it is. First one. Then we jump to Acts chapter 25, verse 25. Festus, this is the Roman governor. He says this about the Apostle Paul. He says, I have found that he had done nothing deserving of death. He's innocent. He's innocent. And then the third time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, verse 31, both Festus and Herod are talking back and forth among themselves. And they say this, this man is doing nothing deserving of death, nothing deserving of death. So there's something really important that Luke is doing as he is ending his gospel. Is he's drawing a direct parallel between the trial and the innocence of Paul and the trial and the innocence of Jesus. And one of the things that Luke is doing as he's writing this work, he's doing several different things. He's revealing Christ in volume one. He's tracking the expansion of the gospel in volume two, the book of Acts. But one other thing that Luke is doing in this book is he's making a defense for Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. He's making a legal defense for Christianity. These volumes are addressed to a man named Theophilus. Okay? And he has a title attached to his name, Most Excellent Theophilus. And every time that title, most excellent, is used in the New Testament, it refers to a Roman governor, okay? To a Roman governor. This man is a dignitary. He is, he is, an, he is an authority. This, this, he, he holds some sort of, of Roman authority. And this is, who, this is who Luke writes to in volume 1 and in volume 2. And we don't know absolutely with certainty... Who Theophilus is, but there are two options that I found really persuasive, and and, and you can uh, uh, pick pick amongst yourselves, and we can certainly talk about this if you have questions uh, when we're done. But who is Theophilus? Okay, some sort of Roman authority, and the two most persuasive op options I think are this is possibly the man who is presiding over the Apostle Paul's trial. In the city of Rome. Okay. And if you think about it. That would make a lot of sense. Right. Of why the book ends. With Paul in jail. In Rome. Because Luke could be writing to the man. Who's overseeing his trial. Showing that Jesus was innocent. And you killed him. That Paul is innocent. And you put him in jail. And there's absolutely no grounds. To these charges that are against him. And another thing that makes sense about that is Luke writes quite often in the book of Acts in the first person plural. That he doesn't just say Paul went and did this. There's a lot of places in the book of Acts where Luke says we did this. He was with them. He's an eyewitness writing to Theophilus. So that's a possibility. Another possibility is that, that Luke is writing to a Roman ruler a few years later. Where Christians are being heavily persecuted by the Roman government. And as we read through the book of Acts, we, we don't see much of that. And in, in fact, the Romans are actually way more friendly to the gospel in the book of Acts than, than the Jews and the Jewish authorities are. But church history tells us that things changed really, really quickly in the early church. And just several years after this, there was government sanctioned persecution unleashed on the church of Jesus Christ, starting with, under the rule of the emperor Nero. We are told in church history uh, that, that Christians were set on fire like candlesticks just to entertain Nero and his dinner guests. They were heavily persecuted and killed all across the Roman Empire. So another option would, would be that Luke's writing to one of these Roman rulers and he's using Roman judicial precedent against the Romans. He's writing to them and he's showing them that their own legal verdicts against Jesus 
and against the Apostle Paul show that the persecution against the church of Jesus is completely groundless. It's baseless. It is fundamentally unjust. Um, either way, either one of those, Luke, part of what Luke is doing is he's appealing for the righteousness of Christianity and the unjustness of the persecution that Paul is facing and also that future Christians um, in the early church would also face. And at the same time, so, so as Theophilus is reading this, that's, that's one of Luke's aims. And as the early church is reading this, he's given us an example of what it looks like when we receive this unjust suffering. And things like this, uh, this unjust persecution, this unjust rejection. We have a model in Paul's life moving through the end of the book of Acts that we are to imitate. That, that Luke is showing us this is what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus Christ when you are rejected, when you are persecuted. And so that's, that, that gives us a sketch of where we're headed over the next several weeks as we see one after the other Paul stand and give defense, a legal defense um, for, for the gospel and for his role as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so our passage today... It's the very beginning of the end of the book of Acts. The very beginning of the end of the book of Acts. And beginning in verse 33, where Paul is chained, he's bound with these chains. And from this point forward, when he, and we know it's, it's, it's over a two-year period, that Paul's going to be bound and he's not going to have that freedom anymore to move around and preach the gospel like we've seen him do on his first his second and his third missionary journey. And so what Paul's going to show us is he's going to show us what faithfulness to Christ looks like when you're in jail for Jesus. He's going to show us what faithfulness to Christ looks like during hardship and suffering and even in, in imprisonment. And we're going to be introduced to a gospel opportunity of a different kind as a man's freedoms are removed from him. And his gospel witness from this point forward is going to be these legal defenses. As he bears witness to Jesus Christ. All this starts in the city of Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 17 of our passage. And I want to remind us uh, of how we got here. Okay, We said that Paul had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I want us to remember why. Why is he here in the first place? And there are two answers to this question. Back in Acts 20. Verse 16, he tells us that he's making haste, making haste to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So one reason why Paul is coming to Jerusalem is to worship. He's coming to Jerusalem to participate in worship and even even the celebration of the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Um, in fact, if we go over to chapter 24, he says this explicitly in chapter 24, verse 11. I went up to worship in Jerusalem. I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And that's something to keep in the front of our minds that we understand that Paul is coming to participate in Jewish worship of his own accord. And that's going to be really important because we're going to see this plan that the apostle James lays and what we need to understand is that Paul is not going against his conscience and he's not going against his will participating in these Jewish customs of his own accord. He's already doing that. And we'll talk more about why in just a moment. So that's one answer. He's coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to worship the Lord. And the second answer to that question is in Acts 24, verse 17. He's coming to deliver a gift. In verse 17, he says that he came to bring alms, to bring alms. This gift and, and this offering uh, to the Jewish, the Jews in Jerusalem is, is referenced several different times in the, in the New Testament. It's a really big deal that we understand that there was a famine that hits Jerusalem, that there's lots of Jewish Christians that are in need. And there begins to be an offering taken up among the Gentile churches to help. These Jewish um, Christians in, in, in this time of massive need. And in fact, we're told in Romans 15 that this offering is so important for the Apostle Paul 
that he lays aside missionary plans to visit the city of Rome itself just so he can deliver this offering. So it's a really big deal. Okay, It's a lot, a lot of money. There's, there's been several years of collection to meet, meet this need by the time that it's delivered. So think lots and lots of money. And, and, and it's caring for the, the poor and needy, but it's more than that. Okay? And, and it's loving other Christians, but it's actually more than that. That this is a really um, a fundamental act of solidarity in the early church. That you have these Jewish churches um, and these Gentile churches. And, and in a natural sense, they have every reason to be against each other and to oppose each other. So this offering is this act of solidarity from the Gentiles. That when my Jewish brothers and sisters suffer, we suffer with them. We are one body in Christ. It was supposed to be not only an act of love, but an act of unity. That we're one church in Jesus Christ. And what we see in this passage is that this gift that Paul delivers, it does not have the effect that Paul intended it to have. This was supposed to be a unifying effect between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And that's the exact opposite of what we see happen in our text today. In verse 18, we meet the representative leaders of both of these groups. Okay, And I don't mean official. They, they weren't voted into this position. But you have these two leaders. And, and the Apostle James represents the Jewish church. And the Apostle Paul represents the Gentile church. And, and they begin... Uh, in, in verse 18, they begin to, to, to recount the triumph of the gospel. And they begin to, Paul starts first and he begins to, to bear witness to what Jesus has done in the Gentile world. That in one city, in one pagan city after another, the gospel has come. Jesus has come down in power and a church, a people called by the name of Christ has been gathered together. And, and, and the gospel has, has exploded in power. In the Gentile world. And they glorify God. That the gospel is going forth. Among the Gentiles. And then we find that James. He also. He begins to recount. The triumph of the gospel. Among the Jewish people. And he tells us that many thousands. Of the, the ethnic Jews. Have believed upon the Lord Jesus. So not just a few. We have a bunch. In, in, in both groups. And Jesus has saved them. He's transformed them. He's made them new. And things seem to be going well. That Jesus is saving these Jews. And Jesus is saving these Gentiles. And then James reveals. That things are not well at all. Under the surface. And he reveals that there are these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That are viewing the Apostle Paul. With tremendous suspicion. And they're specifically concerned about his teaching of the Mosaic law, of the Mosaic law. And let's step back for just a moment and, and mention a few things of what they're not concerned about. Okay, Paul's not getting a bad rap for what he's teaching the Gentiles. Okay, They are specifically concerned of what the Apostle Paul is teaching the Jews. They are not concerned with what the Apostle Paul is teaching the Gentiles. What Paul teaches the Gentiles was handled earlier in the book of Acts, if you remember this, in Acts chapter 15 at this council that we refer to as the Jerusalem Council. And at that council, it was decided by Paul as well as all the Jerusalem leadership that the Gentiles were not accountable to keep the law of Moses at all. And they, in fact, they, they made it official and they wrote a letter. Uh, and, and, and James quotes this letter word by word in, in verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment. They should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So as far as the Gentiles go, the requirements were you don't have to become Jews. But you can't stay pagans either. You have to come out of that pagan system. But you're not responsible to, to keep these Jewish customs laid out in the law of Moses. So the concern was specifically what Paul teaches Jews. 
And in verse 21, specifically the Jews that are scattered abroad. Okay? The diaspora Jews. Not the Jews in Israel. Not the Jews in Jerusalem. But the Jews that are scattered all across the Roman Empire. Where Paul's been preaching the gospel and these churches have been planted. They're charging Paul with teaching these Jews as the gospel goes forth in these cities. That they are to renounce the law of Moses. That they are to renounce the Old Testament law of God. And specifically what they're charging him with is the ceremonial portions of the law of Moses. Okay, And the things that are mentioned here, two things mentioned in verse 21. That he was teaching that they would not circumcise their children. And that they would not keep Jewish customs. Okay. And so this is the beef that they have with the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. Okay? Not that he's teaching people that they shouldn't you know, worship false gods. Everybody's on the same page. We're talking about the ceremonial portions of the law of Moses. What should Jewish Christians do with those? And they're charging Paul with saying these Jewish Christians should burn it to the ground. Be completely done with it. Absolutely forsake it. And from other places in the New Testament, we actually come to know that this is a false accusation against the Apostle Paul. And as we, as we put the teaching of the New Testament together and what Paul teaches about the law, we can come to two conclusions. And the first is this, is that Paul unegetically, unapologetically, he taught that the law, the Mosaic law, it cannot save anybody. He taught that obedience to the law of Moses cannot and will not save anybody. And so we have verses like this in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Note, Paul, according to the Apostle Paul, no human being, whether they're Jew or whether they're a Gentile, will be justified by law keeping. No human being. As we move forward in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul, Paul makes this explicit claim that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. He's the end of it. So there is a sense in which Jesus is the end of the law, and he says, the sense in which Jesus is the end of the law is for righteousness, for righteousness. So as it relates to salvation, Paul is dogmatic and he's unapologetic that you cannot be saved by keeping the law of Moses. No one, whether you're Greek or whether you're Jew. And yet at the same time, we bump into these other streams of verses where the Apostle Paul, he does not call for a clean break. For Jewish Christians to make a clean break with ceremonial law. And so think about this. In the same book of the verses that we just read. The book of Romans. Where he says no one is going to be justified by keeping the law. And he also says in chapter 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Then we come to Romans 14. And, and Paul makes provision in the New Testament church. For what he calls the weaker brothers to still have a conscience that allows them to keep these ceremonial portions of the law in, in relation to, to calendar days, in relation to Jewish dietary law. And, and not only as it relates to other people, Paul himself, under certain conditions, is willing to participate in these ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. Um, just think about what we've already seen in, in the book of Acts. A couple of chapters ago, Paul had Timothy circumcised. Okay? He had him circumcised. He, 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 did, he, he did it not because it was required for Timothy to be saved, but he did it for the advance of the gospel. And we're reading in Acts 21, and Paul tells us that the reason why he's here in Jerusalem is he's here to participate. Part of the reason is to participate in Jewish worship. On a Jewish feast day. To even give Jewish offerings. So we're scratching our head. And we're like. Um, what, what do we do with this? Okay. And, and it gets even more explicit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, Paul says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. And so we see in certain circumstances that Paul, not only is he willing to allow other Jewish Christians to participate in the ceremonial portions of the law of Moses, he himself, under certain circumstances, willing to participate in the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. So all that to say that the charge against the Apostle Paul in Acts 21 is a lie. Okay? They are lying about him. He is being misrepresented um, by these Jewish Christians. Uh, this is unfounded. And as, as you read through some of the commentaries in Acts 21, um, so, some, of the, some of the people who study these things out, they actually take the position that the Apostle Paul sins in, in, in this chapter and that he goes against conscience and he, and he uh, walks back the truth of the gospel. Uh, and I take a really different position. I think that if you read this text, that it is clear that somebody's wrong in this meeting. And in my reading of it, the person who's wrong in this meeting is James. James. James has these Pharisees in the church of Jesus Christ. And they got, you know, the, the, these, these, um, these, these demands that they want to impose on other believers. And instead of holding the standard of the freedom of the gospel, James panders to these Pharisees. And he asked Paul to participate in this vow to try to squash these concerns among the Jewish Christians. And so the surprising thing is that Paul is willing to do this. James asked him to participate in this temple purification ritual. And to our surprise, Paul is willing to do it. And we got to remember who it is that's willing to, to, to do this here. And, and, and it's not a willingness that's scared of conflict. Um, remember, earlier in this chapter, he tells us in chapter 21, the Apostle Paul says that he's ready to die for the name of Christ in Jerusalem. And that would be an awkward transition, right? That he says at the beginning of the chapter, I'm ready to die for the Lord. And then before the chapter ends, he's bowing to please these Pharisees in the church of Jerusalem. That's not what's happening here. His willingness to go along with James' plan is not because of a coward. He's not, he's not fearing man. He's not fearing conflict. But it does show us something really important about the Apostle Paul. That side by side with this zeal for Christ, willingness to die for the glory of Christ and to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Side by side with this martyr mindset is this willingness to defer and, and to the preferences of his brethren. To the preferences of his, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And you think about how rare either one of those mindsets are. And then to think about exceedingly rare to have them in the same person. That he's willing to die for Christ. He's exploding with zeal for Christ. And yet he's willing to defer in, in, in order to love the church and to preserve the unity of the church. And so he goes along. With this purification ritual, this plan that James has, and, and we're introduced in verse 23 to these four men who are under a vow. And almost certainly what they're, what they're partaking in is referred to a Nazarite vow, a vow of separation unto the Lord. And at the end of this vow, they would shave their head, burn their hair as an offering of thanksgiving to God for His grace in their life. And if you want to read more about this Nazarite vow. It's explained in great detail. In Numbers 6. So this was the plan. That Paul would join in with these men. Who were separating themselves. And that Paul would join in. In this purification ritual. Um, and partake of, of temple worship. And the plan was. That as people. As people who opposed Paul. Saw him doing that. Surely as they saw Paul participating. In these Jewish um, uh, vows. And in in this Jewish worship even in the temple. Surely that would squash all the concern. 
that, that they would have. At least that was the plan. But we see in verse 28 that the plan backfires. And what happens instead is that false witnesses, are, they're, they, they're, they're risen up and they oppose the Apostle Paul. And they, they lie about him even further. He's misrepresented to an even greater degree. In verse 28, these false witnesses accuse the Apostle Paul of defiling the temple by bringing in a Gentile into the Jewish temple. Now, this was indeed a very serious crime in this particular time. Um, in fact, we know from the, his, the Jewish historian Josephus that there was a stone partition that was stretched out in the temple. And it was the wall of separation. And Josephus tells us that about every 50 feet on that wall, there was a sign that warned any foreigners that if they transgressed past this boundary, that they would do so at the cost of their own life. And the Roman Empire had actually granted the Jews authority to exercise death on the spot to any foreigners, to any Gentiles that transgressed past this boundary that separated the outer courts of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the Jews. And almost certainly, this is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2. He calls it the wall of hostility that was torn down by the work of Jesus Christ. That wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles through the work of Jesus. Jesus has torn down this wall and those Gentiles who were, who were strangers to the promises of God, the ones who were far off from God, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we know from Paul's letters what he thinks about that stone partition that stretched out in the temple. He fundamentally opposes it. It is, it is antithetical to the gospel. Paul claims that Jesus has torn down that wall of separation through the work on the cross, through his death in our place. And even though Paul is fundamentally opposed to this separation... This same Paul is also willing to participate in these purification rituals and this Jewish separation. He's doing this to, 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 uh, to build unity, to try to maintain uh, unity in the bonds of peace. The same man. And I want us to think about this. Think about how ironic it is that they charge him of defiling the temple by bringing in this Gentile that would defile the temple of the Lord. And yet, the reality is, at the same time, he's doing the exact opposite thing. They're saying, you're defiling our temple, making it unclean. And Paul is going out of his way and jumping through hoops to go through a separation vow to do exactly the opposite thing. Exactly the opposite thing. So all that to say, the same thing here. They are lying about Paul. Paul is being lied about. He's being misrepresented. Um, it's a complete lie. And, and even after he's taken into custody in, in verse 38, for the second time in the book of Acts, Paul is confused to be this terrorist revolution leader. That as he's going around preaching the gospel of peace, Paul is consistently being confused with trying to overthrow the Roman authorities. Again, they're lying about him. He's being misrepresented. Misrepresented. And so if you ever find yourself in a, a situation like this where you're lied about, where you're being misrepresented, where a version of reality is being painted, that's the exact opposite of what reality actually is, then the Apostle Paul and his, and his imprisonment and these defense speeches, this is a source of great encouragement for Christians. Great encouragement to us. He's being misunderstood and lied about by those inside the church, those Jewish Christians, and those outside the church, the unconverted Jews that rose up against him as, as false witnesses. And I want you to think about this. Part of our nature, when things get difficult, um, our minds are broken and they're, and they're prone towards sinful thought patterns. And one of those thought patterns is that when things get difficult and things get hard, we have a tendency to process that 
as um, God, God is not for us. As, as, as I'm being punished by God. I'm being disciplined by God. And, and I want you to think about, you know, the Apostle Paul's emotions and how he's processing these things. He is being rejected. And it'd be one thing if he was rejected and misrepresented by people that he loved. I mean, by that, that hated him. Okay, that'd be one thing. But he's being misrepresented by people that he loved. By people, and think about this, in Romans 9, he loves them so much. In Romans 9, he tells us that he would be willing to go to hell if it was possible, but that the Jews would be saved. His own countrymen. And so think about this, this love that this man has for this nation and for his people. He's willing to lay down his preferences, willing to serve them, and then complete misrepresentation and rejection. And he could be tempted just like we are. That, that he feels like he's being punished by God. Far from God. God's not pleased with him. And the Bible reminds us that in precisely these moments. As the Apostle Paul is being rejected. And he's being detained. And he's being arrested. In precisely these moments. The Bible says he's being blessed by God. He's being blessed by God. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I do want to say this, that that claim right there, that suffering and hardship can be a blessing from God. That's that's one of the things that separates true converts to Jesus Christ from false converts to Jesus Christ. Okay, the culture that you live in, nominal Christianity has no place for suffering for Jesus being a blessing. And the prosperity gospel definitely doesn't have a place for suffering for Jesus Christ can actually be a blessing from our sovereign God. But that is exactly what the Bible tells us about moments just like this, just like Paul is experiencing. This is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you see how countercultural that is? Bad things happen. Christians are rejected. Christians are misrepresented. And Jesus says you're blessed. Jesus says you're blessed. The same thing that the apostle Peter teaches. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, nominal Christians have no place for this. That bad things happen to me and I would be happy about it and I would process it like a blessing that my God just gave me a blessing. Now think about this. How does that work? How exactly is it a blessing? And the answer to that is really clear that in these seasons and in these circumstances and in these situations, God conforms us to the image of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the one that when they reviled him, he did not revile in return. How in the world is God going to shape that kind of character into his people? Here's how. They're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be misrepresented. And in those moments, man intends those for evil, but our sovereign God intends those moments for good. To shape us and mold us. Into the image of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about this. Philippians 3. He calls it the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That we would be made like Jesus. In this way. That we would suffer for the glory of God. Now. I know that many of you have experienced suffering. And many of you are going to experience suffering. In fact all who belong to Jesus Christ. Our promised suffering. This is one of the things that God's word is, is so clear and so open with us about. That it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And we're being exhorted 
by Paul's life to suffer and to, and to process through these seasons for the glory of Jesus Christ. Motives might be questioned. Your actions might be questioned. You need to be expected to be misrepresented, misunderstood, and even flat out lied about. And the most painful part of all is we have no promise in God's word that this misrepresentation at times is not going to come from within the body of Jesus Christ. Within the body of Christ, just like it did with the Apostle Paul himself. And so this is part of the Christian life that we need to be prepared for. Of how are we going to respond when we're lied about? How are we going to respond when we are misrepresented? We're going to be tempted. If you know yourself at all, you know what you're going to be tempted to do. And what you're going to be tempted to do over and over and over again is, is to defend yourself. To show how right you are and how wrong they are. And to despise these situations. And this is a, what we're being called to through God's word is a different path. That we would think about these seasons of sufferings as opportunities to glorify Jesus Christ. Opportunities to be made more like Christ. And so it would be an odd thing if, if you know, a brother or sister in this room, if, every, if anything bad happened to them and they just go around uh, telling everybody how thankful they are about, you know, so-and-so bad thing happened to me and praise the Lord. I'm thankful for it. It would be odd if you asked that brother and sister, uh, why are you thankful for that? And they said, well, God's word says to be thankful and I'm thankful. That's an odd thing. We need to understand why God's word Calls us to rejoice in suffering. To be thankful in all circumstances. And it's really clear. That God is working all things for our good. Romans 8.28. Because God has a plan. That he is going to conform us to the image of his son. Romans 8.29. We're thankful. And, and, and we're rejoicing in God when bad things happen. Because we're trusting God's word. That he intends in these situations to form us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus. He's the one that reviled and did not revile in return. And I was reminded of this kind of mindset and this kind of character by a young girl as a part of this church coming into the membership of this church. And I heard her testimony this week that when she came to Jesus Christ, she was heavily persecuted Listen, by her family, by her family, by her father that loves her. She was cast out of her family as an outcast when she bowed the knee to Jesus. Her daddy that loved her cast her out. She was an outcast in her own family. And, how, and, and you think about that. How do, we, how do we respond? How does she process through that? She loves her dad. She loves her dad. Temptations to bitterness, temptations to anger and despise, and, and, and let me tell him how wrong he is and, and how right I am. And instead, what happened is the Lord Jesus opened up this separate path in the midst of her suffering that all this sister has in her heart for her father is love. All she has is love for her daddy. And all she does is pray that her daddy would be converted, that he would come to know Jesus Christ. She's ready to reconcile at any moment. No bitterness at all. And, and what, we need, what we need to think when we, when we hear that is this is the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what our Savior is like. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And Jesus on the cross, one of the things that he cries out on behalf of those who kill him, is he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the character of Jesus Christ being revealed in the life of the Apostle Paul. And the character of Christ is what we're being called to as we see um, this imprisonment play out. One of the things that's so easy to do, so easy to process uh, these, these sufferings and this rejection personally... Personally, And one of the things we got to be aware of is there's some things happening that are bigger than ourselves. Things that, re that revolve around the glory of Jesus Christ. And we need to be aware of that. God is about more than just you. There's other things 
that are attached to these seasons. And so we got to work really hard to fight that mindset to be personally offended at being rejected. And we got to fight to have this mindset to honor Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection. And Paul shows us what this looks like in this passage. He shows us what it looks like to not to waste our suffering. Do you know that you can do that? Do you know that you can waste suffering as a Christian? The promise is not bad things happen to you and, and everything's going to be okay. The promise is conformity to Jesus Christ. The promise is conformity to the image of Christ. And we don't need to waste these gifts that God has given us to shape us and to mold us more and more into the image of Jesus and, and the way that you see Paul look away from himself in this passage and, and, and onto the eternal purposes of God, he's getting outside of himself, is that he uses this opportunity when he addresses the crowd, and we'll talk more about this next week, is he doesn't use this opportunity to talk about how wrong they are and how right he is. He uses the opportunity to preach the gospel and to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Opportunity for the gospel. Look at verse 35. One of the things that this passage shows us is in verse 35, Paul is beaten so badly. He's in, he, he, he endures so much physical damage in verse 35 that we are told that he cannot physically walk up a flight of stairs to go into the Roman barracks. They have to carry him up the stairs. He has been beaten within an inch of his life. They were in the process of beating the life out of his body when he was rescued by these Roman soldiers. And I want you to picture that. I want you to picture just a little bit of what that would look like, what that would feel like to have that intense pain throbbing through your body, maybe broken bones, a lot of bleeding, you're hurting physically. And in those moments, you know our nature. Our nature is to think about ourself. I'm hurting right now. All I want to do right now is lay down and take comfort. And I want us to see this different path that was open in Paul's life. And I want us to take note of this mindset that is revealed even in the midst of this tremendous pain. Look at verse 30, 39. That after the severe beating, he looks up at this soldier in verse 39. And here's what he says. He says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. You think about how otherworldly this is. That he's beat within an inch of his life and all he can think about is I want to preach the gospel to those people. I still got a pulse right now. I still got breath in my lungs. And I want to preach Jesus Christ. This is Christ being formed in this man. Back in Acts 20, verse 24, Paul told us this motto, this banner that he hung over his life, his mindset. He said, I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we're getting this insight into this real man's life with a nature just like yours. Just like yours. That in this moment of intense suffering, he was sustained and upheld by the Holy Spirit of God to cast his mind upon the glory of Jesus Christ and the souls of men and women. He did not waste his suffering, he used it for the glory of God. He used it for the glory of God. And this example is exhorting us. It's exhorting us not to be too comfortable with the things in this world that all we're thinking about is ourself and how we're affected and how we should respond. And to have this mindset of the glory of Christ among the nations and the souls of, of men and women. And you, and, and you might be thinking that, you know, this morning, if you're really honest, that you can never do that. That you can never do what Paul did. 
That in that moment, you would, a hundred times out of a hundred, you would go and lay down and take a nap. And I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the reason that we have this testimony in Scripture is not to boast in how awesome Paul is, but to boast in the power of Jesus Christ at work in his life. And so my reminder is this. You're cut in Christ Jesus. You are cut from the same cloth as the Apostle Paul. You have the royal blood of King Jesus running through your veins. The same power that was available to him is available to you. The same promises of the new covenant that were made available to the Apostle Paul are made available to you. And so don't fall into this mindset of unbelief. This mindset is to be worked into every follower of Christ. And that's one thing that we've been coming back to. Over and over again in recent weeks that to become a Christian, to become a Christian, not just to be a really good Christian, but to become a Christian is to lose your life and find your life in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to get saved, that you don't live for yourself anymore, that now your life pattern and your habit is that you deny yourself, take up your cross and that you follow Jesus, does a Christian do that perfectly? Not one of us do that perfectly, but every Christian does that. That's a reality in every Christian's life that they have turned away from self and they are now servants of Jesus Christ, ready at any given moment to bear witness for Christ. The Bible reminds us that every believer is to be ready at any given time. On any given day to open our mouth and to give testimony about Jesus Christ. This is a New Testament commandment. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to read this with me. 1 Peter 3 verses 14 and 15. And it says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. The Bible commands this, this mindset and Jesus is worth this mindset. That we would be ready at any given moment to open the mouth and to give testimony to Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And one of the things I want to warn us about is, is, is having this mindset that I'll serve Jesus later. That all this stuff that we're talking about, about living all out for the gospel, even in moments of suffering, of using everything for the glory and honor of Christ, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. I got stuff going on in my life right now. And once I get finished doing that stuff, then I'll do. I'll go all out for Christ. Whether that's things around a job, things around a family, that mindset, that deceptive mindset of nominal Christianity that I'll coast in my walk with Christ right now. And at a future date, I will serve the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly. Whenever, with everything I have. That is the deceitfulness of sin. You will not. You will not. It's one of the ways that sin deceives us. And we need to be really warned by this idea that we can serve Christ later. Because one of the things that that presupposes is that every Christian gets later. Okay? And that's not true in the Word of God. We don't have a promise that every Christian gets to die at 90 years old. And so you got a couple of decades to do it your way. And then at some middle age, you start serving Christ. We don't have that promise that every Christian will live to 90. That you will be, um, that you will live to a ripe old age um, as an old man or, or an old woman. And, we're, and we need to be reminded that some of us are, are going to give an account of our life in our youth. Some of us don't have old age and gray hairs ahead of us. We serve Jesus now. And the reminder there is we don't know who. We have no guarantee which of us is going to stand till 90 years old and which of us will not make it to see 30 years old. But we have a promise in God's word that we will all give account 
of our life to Christ. And I was reminded of that mindset this week um, in, in international news as we were told of this young man from Alabama at 26 years old. At 26 years old, he was called to give his life for Christ. And he died just, just this past week. He died as a martyr engaging an unreached people group in India at 26 years old. Right now, he will give an account of his life for Jesus Christ right now. And every one of us need to have the same mindset that I serve Jesus in every season. Don't let worldly things stop us from serving Christ. Things like family and having children, that stuff is supposed to be used for Jesus. Not, not you do that stuff and then serve Jesus. That's the opposite way. The opposite way. One of the famous things that Jim Elliott says in his diary, this is a famous martyr, um, Jim Elliott, he says this, and this reminds me of Christ, the mindset of Christ, the mindset of the Apostle Paul that we see in this passage. Jim Elliott says this, he says, I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. I'll read that one more time. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. That's the kind of mindset when you're not dominated by self-preservation and saving your life. And I want to live as long as I can and have everything I can in this world. If the dominant mindset is I want a full life that glorifies Christ. Then what you're going to find in these moments as things get hard, you're going to find them to be a blessing and an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. And God is going to use these seasons in our life to shape us. And mold us into the image of Jesus. Let's spend some time as we close praying and asking God to help us. Father, we come to you today, Lord. And we want to ask you, God, not to allow your word to fall to the ground in vain today, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would use it for your purposes in our life, Lord. And only you know what those are all across this room. But one, one of the things we ask you to do, Lord, is to wake us up, God. To wake us up, Lord. Look, We look around us and we live in an area of false conversion all around us, Lord. And nominal responses to Christ. And, and Lord, we ask that you would save us and deliver us from false Christianity. God, I pray that for every member of this church and every visitor, that you would bring us face to face with the glorious Lord Jesus. And in one glimpse of his glorious face, God, that, that you would give us such a thirst and a hunger for Christ that nothing in this world would satisfy us, Lord. God, we ask to be emptied of all self-righteousness. And any desires to boast in ourselves, God, we ask to be kept by you, preserved by you. Keep us faithful to the end, Lord. Don't allow us to fall upon our own resources. Powerfully work Christ's likeness within your people, Lord, we pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us to give us examples and exhortations, God. And we pray, Lord, that they would come today with the power of the Spirit. And that you would cause us to truly hear and to respond with obedience to you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.